Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is the goal? Does the thylacine still exist? Is there really an eight-foot swan-eating catfish in northwest England? Hello and welcome to the 812th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON 1240 AM uh, and 99.5 FM as well. I'm Ben, and those motley questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. Uh, today we uh, will we will bring you a distinguished guest who hasn't been with us for actually quite a few years, uh, but we will have him on whenever he calls in, and we'll mm. go from there. So if you have any questions today, the number is four zero one seven six six one two four zero. That's from anywhere. Or you can email Paul behind the paranormal dot com or contact us by Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All right. Uh, well, Richard just uh, text uh, emailed from England uh, that he is ready. Um, is he though? Is he? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, okay, ready as a teddy, he says. Well, Ben, if you could um, search. A, he has several Skype. We're coming to us via Skype, by the way. We're supposed to say that. All right. Well, just uh, keep keep the. Keep right. the people happy, and I will. I will yeah, do Ben, the producer, will do his thing, and meanwhile, I will read uh, Richard's uh, bio here. Richard, being Richard Freeman, a trained zoologist who has worked for over four hundred with over four hundred species of animals, he is a globe-trotting full-time cryptozoologist, and is the zoological director of the Center for Fortean Zoology, the world's only professional organization dedicated to searching for unknown species. He has searched for cryptids on five continents and has investigated creatures such as the Yeti, the Tasmanian Wolf, the Orang Pendek, the Giant Anaconda, the Mongolian Death Worm, the Almasti, the uh, Niki Nanka, the Gull, and many others. He, he's now planning a series of trips in search of giant man-eating crocodiles, which... Richard has lectured widely on cryptozoology at venues such as the Natural History Museum and the Grant Museum of Zoology in London. He has written a number of books on cryptozoology and folklore as well as horror fiction. His interest in strange creatures stems from a love of the classic Doctor Who. Uh, Richard is honored with a section in our 2017 book, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of. So let's, um, as uh, Ben attempts to connect with uh, our guest, let's um, go to a few questions that Richard was kind enough to answer. Uh, I guess he didn't have to, but he answered them in writing. Uh, we were going to ask, we'll still ask him on the air if he um, gets there and we haven't uh, had a chance to uh, um, ask the question. And I, I'm making no sense. I'm just <laughs> I'm looking here through the answers. The question was, uh, from um, none other than, uh, I guess, our honorary sort of guest co-host, uh, Peter uh, from Bogota, Colombia. And his question, his first question to Richard was, uh, have you investigated any flying humanoid reports? Flying humanoids, very strange. That's kind of big down there in, in uh, Mexico and other areas. And uh, Peter continues, do you have any special information on such recent cases in Chicago and Mexico? And I'm fishing around here for Richard's answers. Uh, all right. Okay. At, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, Richard uh, responds uh, that he has investigated the Owl Man of, of uh, Mon and Smith in Cornwall, England. 
this is a semi-humanoid, owl-like creature that causes intense fear in anyone who sees it. It has been reported from the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s. I know one of the main witnesses. He is now a well-known and prominent scientist and wants to remain anonymous. He saw it as a teenager and was haunted by horrific dreams of the creature for years. He believed that somehow it had followed him home from Cornwall and was lurking in the woods outside of his house, watching him. He is still frightened by the encounter today, despite being in his 40s. I never heard that before. That's quite interesting. It reminds me a bit, and uh, Richard can extrapolate perhaps upon this when he uh, joins us, but we have... um, uh, reports from the uh, Mothman. Now, again, these terms are perhaps a bit arbitrary. Uh, people will see a, um, a creature with the bat-like wings, the aha, you know, Mothman or something like that. The Owlman uh, actually seemed to be a, a, a rather owl-like. Uh, Do we have Richard humanoid. Freeman with us? Hello. Uh, ah, we see we see a a a a, a, visit, a visage on, on 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 the screen. It took us not once, not twice, not three times, but four times <laughs> to figure out which username was actually yours, Stephen. Not Stephen. Richard. Richard. Let's get to the. I know. Right I know right. Steve Freeman. That's why. Okay, Richard. Welcome to the show. Uh, you've saved me. I don't have to uh, read your answers to the question anymore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, how's the audio there, Beth? Steve, could you uh, speak a little... Steve, God, why do I keep saying Steve? Richard! We're not having a good day here. Your name is Richard. Richard, please, would you you be so kind as to speak a little little more enunciated into the microphone? Is that any better? Eh, slightly. All right, somewhat. Okay, Richard, uh, well, again, welcome to the show. It's been a number of years since you've been with us. And you're hearing us uh, properly, are you? Absolutely fine. Very good. All right. Uh, why don't we? We're going to start right in with. Uh, we have already started to ask a Peter's question. Peter from uh, Bogota, Colombia, has written in, and you very kindly answered these in writing. But perhaps you could uh, do so uh, verbally. Uh, have you investigated any flying humanoid reports? Yes, the Owl Man of Morning Smith in Cornwall. Morning Smith is a small village in southern Cornwall, which is on the southwest uh, peninsula of England. And since the mid-1970s up to the mid-1990s, there have been reports of a huge winged, semi-humanoid, owl-like creature there with a great gaping mouth, huge glowing eyes, taloned wings. And um, I actually know, I, I know very well, one of the main witnesses who saw this thing as a teenager, and he is now a very well-respected scientist. And... Um, obvious reasons he wants to remain. Richard, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the audio at this end is really terrible. Could we ask you to call us via Skype, and, and we'll, we'll make the connection again? Uh, uh, okay, yeah, I'll put that again, yeah. All right, th- thank you. Okay, well, we'll make another connection. Sometimes, um, you know, you'd think uh, the overseas connections would be the, wouldn't be any different than the domestic ones. With the, well, I mean, some if, of these. from our, our our travels years ago, uh, the Wi-Fi was not super duper great. No, n- not in the UK uh, at least. But, but yeah, I don't think that's. I mean, people have their own now. And I remember when we were there in 2012 at Rendlesham, uh, speaking at Woodbridge to the uh, I think half the village turned out there was um, you had to go to McDonald's to have free Wi-Fi. Uh, here he comes, all right? And uh, so we'll get back to our uh, guest and our question here as uh, soon as we can. 
All right, hello, Richard. How's that, then? Uh, fine, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? That's a little better, I Actually, think. Actually, yeah, it does sound better. Very good, very good. Okay, uh, well... Let me lean in a little more. All right. <coughs> if, if you hear anything weird in the background, it's my friend's dog. I'm, I'm house-sitting and dog-sitting for the weekend. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. So, we were, we were discussing... Uh, you, were, you were telling us about the Owl Man of Cornwall. Yes. Uh, there's a little village called Morning Smith in um, Cornwall in the southwest of England. And ever since the... Uh, the mid-1970s up to the mid-1990s, there were reports of this bizarre creature, semi-humanoid, resembling a huge owl with claws on its wings, and a great gaping mouth, and huge um, glowing eyes that engendered extreme terror in those that saw it. Uh, I know one of the main witnesses who saw this thing uh, when he was a, a, a teenager. He was walking through the woods near Mormon Smith Old Church with his girlfriend one night, and he saw this thing on the branch of a tree. Uh, people have tried to uh, explain this as a European eagle owl, which is the biggest e biggest owl in the world. But he said absolutely not. He's familiar with eagle owls. It was, it was far larger uh, and far more human-looking. Now he is now a very well-respected scientist, and obviously for for that reason he wants to remain anonymous. Um, but he was terrified and still is terrified of it. He said he had a feeling that uh, it followed him home. He was on holiday at the time and he lives in a different part of England and he said he had the feeling that the thing had somehow followed him home and was lurking in the woods near his house uh, looking up at him and he was having terrible nightmares for years about this thing and now he, he's a scientist now and he comes over as very very sceptical he's one of the most famous sceptics in the world and I think this is down to the terror that this thing engendered in him because he knows that the paranormal exists but he doesn't want to accept it that's very interesting, and I'm thinking back, Richard, to uh, some of the Mothman events on this side of the ocean, and uh, the, the the little little known stories that we uh, have uncovered and other people have uncovered in that vicinity, uh, which was uh, West Virginia and Ohio in the uh, 1960s. Uh, my understanding is that the, uh, the the first two couples who had the the first major, uh, well publicized. Um, encounter with the Mothman reported that they believed that he followed them back. He, she, or it followed them back to their house, and, and she um, swore it was it was in the backyard for half of the night, or in the nearby woods. And so it's a very, rather similar story. Yes, yes, it is uh, very eerily similar. Uh, he said that uh, he had these terrible nightmares where the Iron was forcing him to to hunt and kill other people with a bow and arrow. And he's still scared of it now. He's, he's in his early 40s now, and he still gets rattled talking about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, we don't have your video, but that's okay. Maybe uh, the uh, bandwidth is... is uh, the, uh, rather have better audio. What is your website so that people can visit it and uh, maybe Ben can get it up on the screen? Can you do that, Ben? Sure. Okay. www.cfz .org.uk Very good. Yeah, that's the uh, Center for Fortean Zoology, right? Very good. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the flying humanoid thing is very interesting. Uh, as I understand it, a number of um, uh, our listeners in Mexico 
uh, were very well aware of, of some of the flying humanoid uh, events that have been re- reported around there, particularly around Monterey. So that's uh, quite the uh, the interesting situation. So uh, moving on from that, do you have any special? Uh, moving on with uh, Peter's question, do you have any special information on such recent cases in Chicago and Mexico? Uh, not at all, no. Okay, well, that's good, honest answer. All right, Peter's second question, Charles Fort, and for those who don't know, Charles Fort was a, a um, phenomenon in himself. Uh, in the early 20th century, he uh, researched and, and gathered a tremendous database, non-digital, of course, in those days, of, of uh, bizarre events. That, and he did such a great job of it, and his, his uh, collection was so complete, they became known as 40 in events after him. And, of course, Richard's uh, organization that Richard works with is the uh, Center for Fortean Zoology. So that's Charles Fort. Anyway, uh, he talked about inexplicable rains of animals, rains of frogs, for example, uh, literally animals and frogs falling out of the sky. Uh, Do you think there is any validity to those reports? Yes, I I do. And the interesting thing about them is usually it's one or occasionally two species that are involved. So if there's a rain of fish or frogs, it will be all of the same species. Now, if this, this was a natural event like a water spout, um, sucking these creatures up and then depositing them elsewhere, you'd have everything from the ecosystem in it. You'd have dozens of species, as well as plants and weeds and bits of stick and stuff like that. But you get generally get one species. Occasionally you'll get two species of fish that will be of a similar size. Um, they're, they're very localised, these things. So it's not water spouts, because they wouldn't be so... They'd be, they'd be far, far more indiscriminate. Mm. Uh, how widespread are these phenomena? I mean, have they been reported all over the world? I know they have some in India that have been reported. Uh, and how recently have any been reported? I don't know when the last one was, but um, you hear about them fairly regularly in the pages of 14 Times, and they've been all over the world from you know, Australia to Europe, South America, Asia, North America, you name it. Okay. Uh, now, Ben, are you um, are we sufficiently settled that you can take your questions here? Uh, or I, I can ask them. Uh, d- um, go, go for I, I'll go for it. <laughs> okay. So uh, Ben's questions here include, uh, Richard, uh, can you define cryptozoology for those who yeah. might not know? It, it, it. It comes from the word, the word crypto means it, it's um, Latin for hidden. And zoology obviously pertains to animals. So it's the science of hidden animals. Cryptozoology is concerned with creatures that are new to science, that um, we don't have type specimens of yet, but maybe thousands of people have seen them, but we haven't got uh, a specimen so far. It's also concerned with uh, species that are thought to be extinct that may still be around like the Tasmanian wolf for example or the, the pink-headed duck and it's also concerned with animals of a known species that have grown much much bigger than uh, the textbooks say that they should and you could include things like the giant anaconda or giant crocodiles in there so that is the remix of cryptozoology now if you're being you know hard and fast with this if you get, if you get proper cryptozoology it doesn't include for want of a better word, paranormal entities like ghosts and Mothman and Owlman and things like that. They're not strictly cryptozoology. Okay. Uh, the second part of the question here, uh, why is it easy to find 
bears, but not Bigfoot or Yeti, <laughs> relatively speaking. Because with um, Yeti and Sasquatch, you are dealing with a primate. It's either going to be a great ape, or the evidence is slightly more pointing now to a relic hominin. That is a relative of one of the uh, ancestors of man. We're dealing with an animal that is uncommon, and probably much rarer than bears, but much more intelligent, and much more fearful of, of mankind. It keeps away, it doesn't want to be found, it's a misanthrope, it doesn't want to be found, it keeps away from mankind. Okay. So that's the main reason they're harder to find than bears. The um, conundrum that we ourselves face here, and we, uh, I suppose, we're only in the past five to ten years have gotten into any uh, research on Bigfoot or Yeti and this sort of thing, uh, as opposed to the more ghostly things that I started with in the 70s. And one of the problems, uh, for example, in our Pennsylvania case, the Pennsylvania Triangle, we call it, is that we have a, a wide open area of, we pushed it out to about 50 square miles at this point, and there is... Um, an issue with, you know, where does Bigfoot come from and where does he share it go? Because you have, it's not a wilderness area, it's farm country, you have open pasturage, there are woodlots of perhaps 10 to 15 acres, and where does a primate of this size, and I've seen it myself, much to my surprise, one moonlit night in 2016, and we have neighborhood meetings where 30 to 40 people will show up, all of whom have seen strange lights and, and have had Bigfoot encounters. How do you explain where it comes from and where it, where it goes in an area like that where there's really nowhere to hide of any consequence? Well, known primates, like chimpanzees, which are jungle dwellers, have been known to come out onto plains. And uh, in some areas, they even become nocturnal. They've known to come out onto... Uh, pretty much treeless areas and live there and they've been found miles and miles away from their habitat so occasionally you get these individuals which stray from where they should be and eke out to living in these pretty unsuitable habitats I mean if you ask my opinion I probably think that they're probably passing through it they're not they're not residents there all of the time okay all right well uh, it has even been seen in, in Rhode Island, which is about the size of a typical English county, uh, rather small for this country, but, uh, uh, you know, again, we, we wonder, we do have some forested areas. Now, we understand, Richard, that you uh, journeyed to Central Asia last year uh, to look for the goal. Am I pronouncing it correctly? G-U-L, goal. Yes. Of, of Tajikistan. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what is that, and did you find it? Uh, we didn't find it. We talked to multiple witnesses that had seen it, including a biology teacher that had actually been physically attacked by one of these things. Now, before I went, I thought um, the girl would be a local name, because these things have different names in different areas. I thought it would be um, a, a local name for the, the Almasti, what is known in Russia as yes. the Almasti. But the descriptions we got were quite different from the Russian Almasti, because I've been on the trail of that as well. Um, the ghoul stands about five and a half feet tall, so it's not very tall. It's very powerfully built, has long arms, a very monkey-like face. The females have long, drooping breasts. 
they've got long unkempt kempt hair, foul smell, and the, the hand structure is weird. Uh, the first thing witnesses will always, and every single witness said this, the first thing, they have strange hands. The thumb is placed further back on the hand than a human hand. Uh, the structure is more like the hand of a chimpanzee, uh, whereas um, the Armasti and uh, the Yeti seem to have more human-shaped hands with, with thumbs that are better opposable. This thing has a grip more like a chimpanzee. Uh, we talked to this biology teacher who was attacked by one of those things. He said it said when he gripped, it gripped him, gripped only with the fingers. It used thumbs. Okay. Simp-like grip. Mm. Uh, I'm looking at... Uh, oh, by the way, did you ever receive this book? Because um, you're in it, and the one that Ben and I wrote in 2017, and we we, uh, we discussed with you, and you sent your picture, and we got your permission to use uh, previous interviews on the show, and I wondered if you'd ever seen it, because it's um, uh, rather impressive, I think, uh, what you had to say here. Which book is that? Uh, it's um, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard of. Nope, I ne- never got a copy. Good of heavens! That. Well, 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 we owe you a copy. <laughs> we owe you a copy. <laughs> Better late than never, I would. Uh, we'll um, I'll be in touch off the air about that. But uh, there's a, there's your picture and then your bio, and then we have um, a section the nasty Almasty. Yes, I was sent. Um, I was sent uh, a, a a picture of that page, but I was never sent the actual book. Yes, uh, and we we mentioned that you were in the Caucasus. Uh, in the Russia, in the mountains in Russia, in 2008, and uh, you had an experience about 2:30 in the morning at an old farmhouse. Uh, could you could you uh, tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. We were on the track of the Russian Almasty, which is the wild man of the Caucasus Mountains, and it, it's found in other parts of Russia and the former Soviet Union as well. Lots of different names over a wide area. <coughs> It's smaller than the Yeti or the Sasquatch. It's about seven, seven and a half feet tall. Uh, more human looking. Um, it has a thick brow ridge, flat, broad nose, thin lips, powerful jaws, immensely muscular, long hair. Uh, it hurls rocks, uses clubs, but it doesn't have fire. Uh, the Russians took it so seriously that they had a commission uh, for it back in t- to s- study it called the Snowman Commission back in the... Um, uh, Soviet Union era, and that there's a new commission now that was set up a few years ago. We were over there with Russian and Ukrainian scientists, a couple of whom had actually had close encounters with the creature, and we talked to many, many people in the Caucasus, and the thing that struck me about it was that they couldn't work out why English scientists had come so far just to study the Almasty, because to them, it's just another part of the fauna. It's no more fantastical than a wolf or a bear or a wild boar, and um, they just accept it. And we met many people who'd seen it, including the deputy head of Arboros National Park, um, who's a doctor of geology. And this particular instance you're talking of, we were staking out an old abandoned farmhouse. Some years before, um, a bunch of shepherds had been on the, on the veranda of this farmhouse when the door at the end opened one evening and a seven-foot almasty stood there and according to the story, walked down the veranda, came up to one of the men, just lifted him out of the way, didn't harm him, went on to the end of the veranda and jumped off, disappeared. And there have been a number of sightings of Almasty down this area. Anyway. Uh, well, p- pretty uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, one of the, uh, consisted of, of three 
rooms and an L-shaped veranda running around it. So we put up <coughs> camera traps. And about 10 o'clock at night, I heard this twittering noise. It was it's like bird song, but it was in the dark. And a number of witnesses have said they've heard the Almasty make this twittering noise like a bird. Then bang, now that the camera traps flashes, it's gone off. Something's triggered it. And I thought, is that what I think it is? Anyway, uh, nothing happens then until about 2.30 in the morning. And we go inside, it gets very cold, so we go inside one of these rooms and we're huddled around an old um, stove, an old-fashioned sort of lounge-type stove. And one of my mates falls asleep on a monkey-old mattress, and I've met myself and a guy called Adam Davis, warming ourselves around this, this stove. And the door, which is about seven feet tall, it's this, you know, it's slightly ajar, it's a very clear night, and there's starlight uh, and, and moonlight coming in. And we hear this deep, guttural vocalisation, sort of this, bum, 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 like that. It sounds like something with big lungs that's done it. And I said to Adam, did you hear that? And he said, yeah. And about 25 seconds later, something walked along the veranda. Whatever that something was, it was on two legs. And when it passed the, wind, the um, door, which was a few inches ajar, it blocked off the, the starlight uh, and the moonlight to a height of seven foot plus. And I said to Adam, it's out there on the veranda. So we grab our, our digital cameras, go racing out, but we find nothing but darkness and silence, whatever it is, has gone back into the night. In the morning, we ch check all the, the camera traps, and all we've got is vegetation moving. So that okay. was it. Amazing. Well, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Our amazing guest today, Richard Freeman, back on the show after uh, many years, and we're very happy to have him. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dave Koz, inviting you to tune in this weekend to the Dave Koz Radio Show as saxophonist Jessie J takes her place in our studio guest chair. And remember, you can visit DaveKoz.com anytime for more information and be here this weekend for Jessie J and more on the Dave Koz Radio Show. Hi, fans of smooth jazz. The Dave Koz Radio Show can only be heard on ON, AM and FM every Sunday, twice on Sundays, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., and again, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. The Dave Koz Radio Show is brought to you by the Carew Investment Group. The Dave Koz Radio Show is right here on ON, AM and FM. And welcome back. We're behind the paranormal today <clears throat> with... Uh, our good friend Richard Freeman uh, coming to us from the UK via Skype. Uh, audio is a little iffy, but um, we're, uh, we're we're getting it uh, pretty well. And we're uh, talking about a number of uh, cryptozoological phenomena, creatures, and this sort of thing. Richard, let's get into uh, lake monsters as well. I know Ben has a particular loving uh, relationship with lake monsters. Yes, he's my best friend. Yeah, so he always when he was little. He always wanted me to take him to uh, Inverness. Uh, you know, as if uh, you know, Nessie come up and shake his fin or something. I also, for some reason, thought Scotland was like a five minute drive. I, I don't really know why. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Anyway, uh, uh, British lakes are known for uh, being glacial and also having uh, the occasional monster. Uh, we have um, a report from uh, some years ago, actually 1968, of a creature in Loch Nahuin in Galway, Ireland, Western Ireland. And uh, the Coyne family at one point, uh, where they were farmers, they were observing a very strange um, long-necked creature of the kind uh, you'd commonly associate with the, uh, the tales of lake monsters. Uh, only this one didn't seem to have any eyes. 
according to the report. And I'm wondering uh, if this is true, what your opinions might be on the origins of some of these lake monsters. They're uh, commonly assumed to be uh, holdovers from uh, some uh, prehistoric period or some plesiosaur, things of that kind. But is it possible, um, if this thing is true about having no eyes, it might have come up from the depths of the earth somewhere and come up through um, underground rivers or whatever, And because uh, it's known that many subterranean um, aquatic creatures don't have any eyes because it's totally dark and they don't need them. And they've evolved out of them. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? I think they, they probably thought it hadn't any eyes because they couldn't see them, rather than the creature not having any eyes. In Ireland, these things are called horse eels. And with good reason, because most of the descriptions are of immensely big eels. Uh, there's one from mm. Loch Adda, where um, a woman called uh, a librarian from Clifton called Georgina Carberry, and said that her friend sort of thing, she said, had shark like jaws, and this great writhing body, and it scared her so badly she wouldn't return to the lake for years and years, and then never at night. She was interviewed by the, the legendary monster hunter. Um, uh, Ted Holliday, uh, and he noted how utterly terrified she was. Um, and back in the 19th century, there was uh, a case of one of these things getting jammed in a, a culvert, this huge, about 30 feet long eel, and the local people were so terrified, they had the blacksmith forge a harpoon to try and kill it, but um, a flash flood washed it away. But uh, Loch Ness, as well as Loch Morrow, I think what we're dealing with is an immensely big eel. The European eel lives in fresh water. And it, uh, when it gets ready to breed, it goes out to the Atlantic, to the Sargasso Sea, where it breeds and dies. And the babies, the elvers, elvers have left the building, um, they follow centrals back to the ancestral waters, and the system goes around again. But occasionally, so the theory goes, you get sterile in it. It has no impetus to go into salt water to breed, and it stays in fresh water, getting bigger and bigger and older and older. In 2004, at Loch Ness, a bunch of Canadian tourists said that they saw um, an eel 25 feet long in the shallows at Loch Ness. And in 1907, there was a very interesting case from Brewston House in Ireland. Uh, next to Brewston House, on the, the Brewston estate, was a couple of lakes, and the local people said they would never go there because they were inhabited by monsters. And uh, it was owned by a company called the, McF the McDowell. And he came home on, uh, on leave, and he found that the shepherd farmer had shot a couple of feral dogs who were killing the sheep. Oh, sorry, so he hadn't shot them, he poisoned them, he killed them with poison and, because they were attacking the sheep. And the bodies were left down by the lake overnight, he couldn't dispose of them in the morning. But when they came back, they found the bodies had been fed on by two immense eels. And both of these eels were now dead from the poison they consumed. One of them was 12 feet long and the other was 10 feet long. And apparently these things were photographed uh, on the step of Jerusalem house with, with uh, the family and the servants all around them and that then uh, this was framed and people remember seeing it as late as the 1950s but Christian uh, House is now sort of a missionary centre and the McVeigh family emigrated to Australia so whether this photograph is still in um, existence I don't know, I'm trying, I'm trying to get hold of information on it at the minute um, the guy that runs Christian House heard the story but he'd never seen the photograph and he don't know all right, what about that, that lovable Asian uh, critter known as the Orang Pendek? You have researched that as well. Yes, perhaps more than any other cryptid. Uh, the Orang Pendek is a 
that I'm most linked with. I've been over there five times now. The Orang Pendek is a, a short, about three to five feet tall, upright walking ape. Very powerfully built, generally with dark grey or black hair. Um, walks upright, lives on the forest floor. And it's been reported ever since the days of the first Dutch colonists there. I've been over there five times now to Kerinci Sablak National Park in, in the west of Sumatra, especially around a place called Gunungtuju, the Lake of Seven Peaks, which is a, a, a big lake in a, a caldera of an extinct volcano. I've seen the creature's footprints, I've seen its handprints, and I've heard it calling in the forest. I used to be a zookeeper, and I'm familiar with uh, the footprints of all apes in all kinds of mediums. This is very different. There's a very human-looking heel, an offset big toe that is semi-prehensile, and then four toes at the front. Um, we found hair over there, and it was examined by Lars Thomas from the University of Copenhagen, who is an uh, expert in mammal hair, and he said it is related to, but distinct from the Sumatran orangutan, and that he's forced to uh, acknowledge there's a large unknown primate <coughs> in Sumatra. Um, my friend Adam Davis and our guide, the late Sahar Dimas, both saw the creature uh, squatting in a tree and then it climbed down and walked away on its hind legs like a man. Now I think it's a ground-dwelling species of orangutan. <coughs> we already know that there's, there's three known species of orangutan. There's the Sumatran orangutan, the Bornean orangutan, and the Tapanuli orangutan, also in Sumatra, only identified a couple of years ago. And we know that these speciated thousands of years, about 400,000 years ago, these species broke off, became separate species, uh, when the whole of Sumatra, Borneo, Malaya, Java, was all one landmass. They'd already speciated then. So I think that there's a fourth extant species of orangutan, one that's adapted for life on the forest floor rather than a boreal life, and that is the orangpende. What about the thylacine? And that's a relatively recent extinction, isn't it? Yeah, the thylacine is known as the Tasmanian wolf. It's a uh, dog-like marsupial. It resembles a short-haired dog with pointed ears and a long, thick, kangaroo-like tail. But it has tiger-like stripes on its hind quarters. Um, it lays its young in a pouch, like all um, marsupials. And it is a meat-eater. It hunted things like wombats and kangaroos and things. And <coughs> it lived on New Guinea, Australia, and Tasmania. Now, we think it died out about 4,000 years ago on mainland Australia. Uh, the, the placental dingo was brought over by the Aborigines. Uh, although it's no match for a thylacine in a fight, it can breed faster and it hunts in packs, whereas the thylacine hunted alone. And it may have brought diseases with it that the thylacine is vulnerable to. But the dingo was never taken to Tasmania. The thylacine survived on Tasmania. When the white settlers got over to Tasmania, they do what they did best. They wiped out the Tasmanian Aborigines. They shot them all like animals. Um, they wiped out the, uh, the Tasmanian emu. And they did their best to wipe out thylacine. There were several bounties put on it, and, and several thousand were killed. The last one was in the wild was shot by a, a guy called Wolf Batty um, in oh, about 1930, and the last one in captivity died in 1936 in Hobart, Missouri. 
but since then there have been over 4,000 sightings of the thylacine. Not just by laymen, but by park wardens and zoologists. And its continued existence has even been predicted by computer programs. Professor Henry Nix um, developed a computer program called BioClim, and it was used as a research tool, and you'd program everything you knew about the habits of your target animal into there, and everything you knew about um, a habitat, a, uh, a geographical region. And then the computer program would merge them together, look at the data, and then predict whereabouts in this ge geographical region it's most likely going to find this target animal. And he tried this with the thylacine, and he found that there was something like a 98% matchup with where the computer program was saying that they would exist on Tasmania if they see around, and where people were actually reporting them. And I've been over there now three times, and I've talked to um, a park warden who's heard one crying, a very distinctive cry they've got. Uh, I've, heard, uh, I've talked to a government licensed shooter who goes, down, goes out keeping the feral cats down. He's seen one. Uh, an old logger I talked to had seen one back in the 50s, and his son had seen one just the year before I was there. So of all the cryptids, I think this is the one most likely to exist. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Uh, I think perhaps um, why don't we take a moment to uh, talk about your website, where people, your books, where people can find out more about you before we burn up the hour here. Yeah, as I say, that it's, it's called the Center for Fortean Zoology, and the website is www.cfz.org.uk. I've written a number of books. My latest one is called Adventures in Cryptozoology, Volume 1. It's the first volume of a two-volume set. It's published by Mango. And it's uh, available on the, uh, you know, online now. If you, if you go onto Amazon and type in Adventures in Cryptozoology, you'll get it. Or you could get it from most good bookshops. Probably most crap bookshops as well. <laughs> that's, that's my latest book. But in the past, I've, I've written a number of books. I've, uh, I've written a book on, called The Great Yokai Encyclopedia on monsters and ghosts from the folklore of Japan. And the folklore of Japan is just wonderfully weird. It's totally bizarre. I've written a book called Dragons More Than a Myth that looks at dragon legends all over the world and examines what might be behind them and, and then could dragons uh, actually exist and if so, what, what they are. And I've, I've written a, a number of horror uh, fiction as well, a, number of, a couple of um, collections of, of horror fiction, Green and Pleasant Land, which is uh, horror stories based on British folklore. Yes, I, I love the horror genre, but I think Zombies and vampires have been done to death, and there are much scarier monsters about. So I've, I've used a lot of monsters from British folklore, like dragons and black dogs and goblins and earth hounds and things like that. Then I wrote another one called Hayaku Monogatare, which is a similar idea, but using Japanese um, folklore. Uh, and the monsters from there, which, are, as I mentioned, are really, really bizarre. Well, uh, certainly zombies are uh, rather popular. The, uh, <coughs> not to get away from our subject, but uh, since we began putting our shows on the uh, major podcast platforms, uh, perhaps, what, four months ago, the most popular one by far is one from 2013 uh, with a woman who was talking about her research into zombies, you know, the cultural implications, things of that kind. And uh, that was about the last time you were on, I'm afraid. But um, we'll try to remedy that, that in the future. But zombies, they're, they're, uh, they're still big, apparently, uh, uh, out there. So, uh, so Richard, uh, let's uh, move on to uh, the most, um, I think, uh, our favorite 
uh, creature, which is the Mongolian death worm. Now, I know yep. that this is probably not anything totally mysterious about it, but what's, uh, what's the story with that? Well, I'm heading out there again uh, next year to search for the death worm again. I was there in 2005 in Mongolia, which is the most alien and weird place you've ever been in your life. It's like you know, stepping onto a set uh, for an episode of Doctor Who. It's utterly bizarre. Um, the death worm, uh, the local people call it Aroquoikoi, which means intestine worm, because they say it looks like a length of cow's intestine. It's supposed to crawl up to the surface after rainfall, inhabits the Gobi Desert. Um, Roy Chapman Andrews, the man they based Indiana Jones on, um, was one of the first Westerners to look for it. He was a paleontologist, and he was um, in the Gobi Desert looking for fossil remains of ancient humans. And what he found was crops of dinosaur, fossil dinosaur eggs, but he heard many stories about the death worm. Now, uh, the death worm is supposed to be red in colour, and so the stories go, it can spit a corrosive yellow saliva that acts like acid and deliver great blasts of electricity that can kill a full-grown camel. But when I went over there, I travelled for a thousand miles through the Gobi Desert talking to many, many witnesses. They all said that the throwing lightning, they call it throwing lightning, the electricity is folklore. But they believe it's poisonous and can spit the poison. And they're <coughs> deeply terrified of it. A death worm sighting can send a whole community into panic. Uh, we talked to one man who had seen it in his youth as a boy while he was tending his family's goats and camels. And he told his mother and father, and they grounded the animals up, packed up their girl, which is the circular uh, tents they have, and moved out of the area. Now, we spoke to about two dozen witnesses. Um, one old guy had seen it way, way back in the 30s, and one chap about my own age had seen it just a year before, 2004, at an oasis. And <coughs> they were all describing something that looked like a, a draft exclusion or a salami, a big fat sausage-shaped thing, scaly, brick-red in colour. <coughs> um, most of it was just lying in the desert when they saw it. One man saw one emerge from a hole and grab a mouse and eat the mouse. Another woman saw one slithering in and out of the roots of a, of a saxel bush. But they were all deeply afraid of it. And it sounds like, rather than a worm, it sounds like a reptile. Now, there are a group of reptiles called Amphisbanas, or worm lizards, and these are these strange, sort of, sausage-shaped, boring reptiles. They're not lizards and they're not snakes, they're in a little group of their own. And it sounds like the death worm could be a large, undiscovered species of worm lizard. So, Richard, what is your next adventure? Well, next June I'm heading back out to Mongolia for another crack at the old death worm. Hmm. And uh, when will that be? Next June. Next June. Very good. Okay, we're um, just about out of time, Richard, and uh, thank you so much. It's always fascinating. We'll be in touch off the air. We'll get you that book, and uh, we'll be in better touch than we have been in the past, okay? Thanks, um, Alan. All right, thank you so much. Richard, perhaps the next time there's more uh, time for it, but uh, he seems to be a, a very down-to-earth, feet-on-the-ground zoologist. I mean, he's, he's as you heard, he has been a zookeeper, things of this kind. And uh, he might not be uh, as out there as, as we uh, and some of our colleagues are uh, as far as what the origins of these creatures may be. He doesn't seem to get into the multiverse at all. You know, and that, that's fine. He may be very well... Uh, he may be, be correct on that, and we respect that. Uh, but um, 
I, I just uh, noticed that. What do you think, Ben, on, on some of that? Uh, I mean, just I, I don't know the issue of uh, coming and going in areas where it's highly populated for a creature the size of Bigfoot not being seen. I don't know. Well, I'm I'm open to the idea of of camouflage, right? So mm. it's it's really interesting when you when you walk around in nature um, for 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 long periods of time. Say you're going on on a hike or something. You don't really see too much wildlife. Um, you might, you know, especially if you if you go if you follow trails, even if you get off trails, you'll notice. You know, you, you'll hear maybe see a few birds, but you don't really see anything else. Maybe if you're paying attention, you might see like a lone deer or something like that wandering around. But most animals have gotten by, living in and around humans, without being noticed for yeah. for a very long period of time. And um, as as a good friend of ours, Andy Kitt, kind of explained to me. If we don't expect to see it, we probably won't. Actually, that, that's very true. In intelligence training, in the military, at least back in my day, that was a principle. You know, if, if people don't expect to see you, that that's half the secret of invisibility, so to speak, in yeah. so many words. So you're yeah, right. It's it's all about perception, right? Yeah. So it's like um, uh, the other day I was I was driving driving around uh, for for work purposes, and uh, one of those one of those leaf bugs flew onto my windshield. Mm. Um, the base. I I don't actually I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but it looks like a leaf. Like you look at it first glance, like oh, it's a leaf that's on my windshield. But then it's you a see mimic. It, yeah, and then yeah. you see it kind of wandering around, and it's it's like oh, it's it's a little, little bug. It stayed on my windshield for a very long time actually, <laughs> and um, I it's it's interesting because you know you, you just, it's one of those things you just don't really expect to see it. And I'm I'm totally open to that idea of of Bigfoot or some of these other other creatures. In, in existence that sign up kind of have more naturally elements than supernatural if that makes sense because some yeah, yeah, okay. some cryptids seem more natural like they they kind of that you could see them existing in nature and then others like mothman and and stuff like that are just like really kind of out there mm. they're a little they're a little too too out there to be something naturally occurring if that okay. makes sense it does make sense it does make sense uh, in the same book in which we feature Richard Freeman, uh, we have lots uh, of info from our good friend Linda Godfrey, who is probably the uh, in America uh, certainly the leading expert, uh, probably on um, canine cryptids. And there was, <coughs> excuse me, there was um, we have had some fascinating discussions with Linda about that. And she herself uh, was saying that she was down in the Big Thicket area of Texas, which is where one of our new uh, cases uh, for, I guess you might call it a flap area, is uh, kind of uh, beginning, start, trying to get started. And she was making, um, she, uh, it was the Monster Hunters TV show, which I think was uh, <coughs> was on the, uh, <coughs> was it the Discovery Channel or the History Channel? Monster Hunters? Uh, was, uh, that was History Channel, I believe. Okay. And she was filming down there with, with the crew, and they um, had, a, naturally, these things don't walk right into the camera, but uh, they turned a light. They heard something in 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 the uh, thicket because it's not called big thicket for nothing. And they turn the light and they just see the back of what appeared to be a, a wolf-like creature standing up <clears throat> and walking away. And of course, naturally, they didn't catch it on camera. It's like I didn't get Bigfoot <clears throat> that time when I saw it. But it was really quite uh, <clears throat> quite a remarkable experience for Linda uh, and an, an example that um, these things are very difficult to find. One of the um, when you get into creatures that really don't have names, and there's a picture of one in my, in my book that just came out a few weeks ago, uh, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, <clears throat> which I've been presenting a lot on lately. 
There's a picture in there of um, that was submitted to us anonymously of a creature taken uh, in a Connecticut house with a uh, security camera. And it's in the middle of the Connecticut Triangle, as we call it. And it's just, it's indescribable. It's, it's almost like a, uh, a single colored chameleon-like or lizard-like creature about the size of an alligator standing, uh, up, about the size of a man standing at the, in front of the sink when no one was home and it was caught on the camera. Well, you know, it's weird. Um, we never thought of it like a reptilian until someone screamed it out at some event that we were at. Yeah, yeah, they they did. Um, and th- this is the issue of labels, putting mm-hmm. labels on things. And now that's what we see. Because I, I, I didn't yeah. see that before initially. I kind of just was like, ah, it's a shape. Yeah, I yeah, didn't really I give know. it a label, and then there was a label, and I was like, oh, now I can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and, and I don't know what it is, but uh, the idea is that, that if there are creatures like this around who are not multiversal in the sense of shape-shifting or what the natives would call shape-shifting uh, or moving back and forth across the membranes of parallel worlds, then yeah. then what are they, you know, how do they get away with this, <laughs> so to, you know, so to speak? Meddling kids. Yeah. Well, and then, then there's the issue of simply uh, complete camouflage. Um, I mean, that that would be an explanation. It would be perhaps more acceptable to some people than the multiverse explanation, uh, simply being able to blend into the foliage. Uh, what was the? Um, th- there are creatures that can do that. There's various, even oct- octop- octopi and, and chameleons and cuttlefish that can uh, instantly almost blend into their surroundings, and uh, you w- the, you don't see them. It's almost perfect camouflage. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, exactly. I think that's that's one of the things. Um, I know Alexander Petikoff kind of kind of brings that up in his oh, in his yeah. research. He talks he talks a lot about. A lot of the the bio like you know bio biological principles mm. of 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 some of these these sightings, and that's why I mean I like his approach that way because it's interesting because he does use conventional like you know zoology yeah in his approach, which which is ba- basically using what we already know quote unquote and um, you know kind of applying it to something we don't know. Like, you know, some, some animals can emit uh, low-frequency sound waves to scare off predators and, and, mm-hmm. and, and whatever alike. Or, um, you know, stuff, stuff in that realm, which may or may not be sort of used by Bigfoot and whatnot. But I think, I think something that, that should be... But it doesn't mean they can't be multiversal either. Yeah, and the explanation is good, but I don't know if it goes far enough. For example, even if... All right, my own sighting, okay? September 16th, 2016, field in Pennsylvania, uh, occupied, it wasn't built up, it's farm country, the the, the very kind of country that we described to uh, Richard when he was on a few uh, minutes ago. The... When... Well, I, 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 I saw it through a, a cold window of my truck. I took a shot with an infrared camera. Naturally, no heat signature, so, so no image. I got out. Your mother called on the phone. Mm. Uh, they were talking about timing. <clears throat> and uh, it, it was gone. All right. But I saw it very clearly in the moonlight only a minute before. Could it have blended into this out of some sort of fear, maybe of me getting out of the truck? Uh, that's a possibility. Mm. But uh, even if there is the the uh, perfect camouflage capability like that, there would still be scat, droppings. There would still be bodies, uh, presumably, uh, at least now and then. There would be hair samples, which there are now and then, but uh, not, not to the point that would uh, live up to the uh, a breeding population that would be required. No. 
Not in this all. area. So I think there, uh, th- there may be natural capabilities as well. One of the other things that comes up with, with Bigfoot and Yeti is the whole idea of uh, the terrible smell that's often associated with them. Uh, my opinion is that you have, uh, that's a defense mechanism such as a skunk would use. Mm. You know, and that they don't always smell terrible. It's just when they're uh, alarmed, perhaps. Well, I think one of the one of the things to keep in mind is is you know maybe maybe biological science just isn't isn't up to to explaining these things just yet. Yeah, I, I you think you're right. I think I think that how how we kind of learn about the world around us is through assumptions that we've learned you know you know decades centuries ago, mm-hmm. and we kind of just take that and apply it. Yeah, and put labels works. on things. Uh, according to that paradigm. Well, the, and another another thing that I is is interesting is it's it's similar to physics. Physics, the study of physics is isn't isn't new, but a lot of the 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 modern approaches are you know only fifty sixty years old. Mm. And one of the interesting things about physics is a lot of it is, for lack of better words, made up. It's they kind of create models and and put them into place and then test them. Yeah, to plug holes. Pretty much. Yeah. And if 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 it works, cool. If yeah, it's a legitimate way to do. It. And sometimes yeah, it works out. Exactly. Not always. Yeah. But most other sciences do the same thing. Yeah. Where they kind of have some sort of baseline and kind of make up something. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, we probably ought to move on to our announcements. We should. Uh, I had a great time uh, yesterday on my ancestral turf, uh, speaking at the Wood Memorial Library in South Windsor, Connecticut, about my new book that I just mentioned. And uh, many thanks to uh, Cindy and the other folks there, uh, sponsored by the uh, Book Club on the Go in East Windsor Hill. It was a great day. So Thursday, October 3rd at uh, 6.30 p.m., we'll be back for a presentation at the Blackstone Public Library on 86 Main Street in Blackstone, Massachusetts, right here in our home listening area. Uh, Please call 508-883-1931 for information. And next Friday, uh, that is Friday, October 4th, begins the two-day Greater New England UFO Conference. That's Columbus Day. Wait, is that really this this coming weekend? The Time flies and having fun. Really? I thought yep. it was. I, thought, I always thought it was the second week. Huh, I guess not. Uh, I guess Columbus Day is the. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> look at that. So it's already coming up. Um, too much, too soon. Yeah, I know. I just looked. I look at the yeah. calendar. I was like, oh, for some reason, I always thought it was the second week of. of uh, we October. look forward to that event. We do event. look forward to that event. So that's the Greater New England UFO Conference. That's Columbus Day weekend at City Hall, Lemonster, Massachusetts. Along with ourselves, speakers will include Calvin Parker, eyewitness to the Pascagoula UFO incidents of 1973, Roxy's Wicker, William J. Hall, Jimmy Pentanito. Alexander Petikoff, uh, Dave McCullough, Ronnie LeBlanc, Cheryl Costa, uh, Mike Stevens, and Dennis Stone. And once again, the Friday section of the event will be Bigfoot Night. And uh, we will uh, speak on Bigfoot and UFOs, the most extreme cases in New England and beyond. Uh, visit NewEnglandUFO.com for ticket for the ticket link. And we're just about done. Uh, next week we have Dr. Joseph Gallenberger to look at practical applications for psychokinesis. So I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition.